So, howdy everybody. Welcome to GPSA's first guest speaker panel. Um, here on our panel today, we have some wonderful speakers we're gonna talk to. Um, before they introduce themselves, I wanna just kind of welcome everybody here to this panel. Um, so before we get started, just to kind of get a feel of how everybody's feeling today, if y'all could drop in the chat, like how y'all are doing, um, that would be great just so we kind of get a feel for is everybody excited, how everybody's doing, how everybody's day is going. So like one, two, three, put it in the chat. Like how are y'all doing? We doing okay? Fabulous. Yes. Yay. Awesome. Great. Cool, cool. Yay. I'm so happy that everyone is here today. Thank y'all so much for coming to our panel. Um, so a little bit about why GBSA decided to host a panel like this on success and success in life and overcoming challenges. We thought about this kind of over the summer and we were trying to think of like what we, we'd like to bring speakers. So what would we like our speakers to, um, what, we like, what would we like from our speakers and things like that. And so we decided to do one on success and overcoming challenges because right now in the world that we live in, there are a lot of challenges that we're facing and it's really trying and testing us. And so we really wanted this panel to be really hopeful um, and really inspire people to kind of continue with what they're doing and to really strive to succeed and to do what they wanna do in life. So um, we really hope for this panel to be really inspiring, really motivating, um, and we hope that everybody comes out of it feeling really inspired to do something, really wanting to go and be brilliant in whatever you want to do. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our panel today. So um, first, Dr. Shaver, uh, would you like to start off with the introductions? Okay, can you hear me now? Is that better? Yes, we can. Okay, very good. Okay, I'm... Uh, Chief of the Division of Sea Turtle Science and Recovery at Padra National Seashore. That's a unit of the National Park System. And some people don't realize that way over here in South Texas, we do have a, a unit of the National Park System, like Yellowstone, Yosemite, Grand Canyon. Yes, we're part of that. Uh, I'm also the Texas coordinator of the Sea Turtle Stranding and Salvage Network. And I have been working with sea turtles here in South Texas for 40 years years. I started my career as a Student Conservation Association intern in 1980, coming here uh, from upstate New York. I read about uh, the opportunity down here through a brochure back in the days when it was actually pinned on a bulletin board, not just an electronic bulletin board, but a cork board bulletin board. Uh, opportunities all over the country, and it described uh, one here in South Texas that really intrigued me working with sea turtles. Because although at Cornell I was an undergrad major in wildlife biology, I really wanted to work with threatened or endangered species. And so the position here really intrigued me. I came down here, I applied for the job, I got it, uh, and worked here and absolutely fell in love with South Texas. And have uh, when I finished my undergrad degree at Cornell, Cornell, I moved down here and I've been a Texan ever since. I got my master's degree at Texas A&I University, which is now A&M Kingsville. I worked uh, in the biology department with Dr. Alan Cheney and he 
had overseen a lot of people who did uh, field biology projects for their uh, master's degrees. And uh, I continued to, in between uh, doing the co college work during the school year, I would work out here during the summers as a seasonal, and then I got on permanent with the National Park Service, and then went into the resources management trainee program, and began my PhD program, which I uh, completed at Texas A&M, uh, the, the main campus in College Station. And I worked with Dr. David Owens. I was in his lab studying in, uh, green turtles in Texas for my dissertation project and continued to work uh, full time with, with uh, the National Park Service uh, and the had a 10-year stint with the U.S. Geological Survey, too, when Bruce Babbitt reorganized researchers in the Department of Interior. So off we went to that, and then I came back to the National Park Service. But I've worked exclusively with sea turtles ever since I was moved to the USGS in 1993, and then came back in 2003 to the Park Service. And we have a division of uh, about eight year-round staff members and about 35 seasonals and about 100 volunteers that work with us in the summer, working with the nesting caps for the sea turtle program as well as stranded sea turtles and a variety of research projects that are collaborative with partners in Texas as well as partners in Mexico. And uh, the work is very high profile because we're working to help save the world's most endangered sea turtle species, the Kemp's Ridley, and form a secondary nesting colony of that critically endangered species here at Padre National Seashore. So, uh, South Texas is my home. I uh, love my time at Texas A&I, now A&M Kingsville, and uh, I'm really a fan of that school. I think it's a great school and has afforded a lot of opportunities for a lot of people over the years. That was a very brief nutshell. <laughs> Authored a lot of papers, given a lot of scientific presentations, uh, been uh, it's very high profile. So I was ABC World News Tonight person of the week and uh, on uh, July 29, 2005, Corpus Christi Caller Times Newsmaker of the Year in 2012 for the year 2011 uh, and received a lot of awards and, and recognition. And I'm very, very, very grateful for the opportunities that I've had over the years. I've been, I've been truly blessed with uh, working with great colleagues and great young enthusiastic employees and volunteers and, and uh, working with this animal and having the chances that I've had. Allie, would you like to go next and introduce yourself? Sure thing. Hi guys, uh, I'm Allie Torres. Uh, you might have, you might know my husband, Francisco Torres. He's uh, part of GBSA here. Um, I graduated from Texas A&M and College Station in 2017 with a Bachelor's of Science in Bioenvironmental Sciences um, and a minor in business. And I took a little bit of a different uh, path. I had started off in conservation research focused on uh, marine bony fish in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and then did a quick stint at the Department of Energy and doing some public policy work, but ended up choosing to go more the business route. 
Um, so today I am a management consultant with a large consultancy uh, based here in the U.S. Um, and have gotten to work in a variety of industries and do a lot of really cool things, um, but very not related to my undergraduate training um, in environmental sciences. And so I'm happy to answer any questions um, about what that looks like. How do you start thinking? If, if you're interested in something outside of research or science, how do you think about that? Um, and I know our panelists here have been involved in a lot of other things, um, even you know tangential or outside of their research. So. I'm really excited to be part of this panel today. I guess I wanted to start off with a couple questions addressed to everyone in our panel, uh, just to kind of get kind of the thought process for you. So um, one of our questions we have for our panel, everyone in our panel, um, is what was the biggest challenge you faced in your career and how did you overcome it? So, who would like to start off? go first on this one. This one's really easy. Um, during, I had a PhD MD stint um, at UTMB Galveston and the Department of Defense pulled funding for my project. And so I was left with either a large tuition bill or uh, finding a different program. So I actually had to go and find a different program, but it ended up being a blessing for me because my PI, um, Dr. Todd Pavis said, you're a dirtbag biologist, you don't belong behind a bench, this is going to make you a lot happier. And boy, was he right. It was a, a great move for me um, to get out of there and get back into the field, because that's really where I wanted to be. Well, I can go next. Um, some of the biggest, uh, biggest challenges as far as nursing goes, um, I would say, uh, there's not, I wish I could just say there was one, <laughs> but there's, there's plenty of them. Uh, some of the, the biggest challenge though is probably the shortage of nursing. Um, if there was a research done with um, uh, the American uh, Manage Management Nurses Association, which uh, they did, 72% uh, of them said that there's a shortage in every, everywhere, everywhere. So, uh, so that leads to the next, next uh, challenge, which is, working long hours and being able to function um, at a very high stress level all the time, even if it seems like a light day, but for some it's not. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, for an average person, I think that doesn't, it's not in the field, it's like working all the time. Uh, <laughs> you know, and so uh, you're, you're, the only thing you do is you count your day off just to rest and then go back to work. So there's not really, anything else other than taking care of people um and i would say uh, the other thing is of course work workplace hazards um of course your physical demands on your body to be able to lift and push and grab and um is is always there so for 30 years of doing this it's it takes a toll on everybody there's not a nurse that doesn't have something some kind of chronic something and it's just um, part of the part of the challenges. Um, the other one would be violence in the workplace, and that's uh, things that aren't even reported. Uh, a high high level of of instances are never reported. Um, anything from being kicked, scratched, uh, thrown thing you know things thrown at you, and and that's just um, some of the probably the biggest challenges. Those are probably the, the four biggest challenges. And being able to, to sustain yourself in this field is, is being able to, to be flexible enough to uh, 
roll with the punches, <laughs> I guess you could say, and go from there. But anyway, well, thank you again. Well, this is. Hello. Oh. Go ahead. Uh, this is Donna, and uh, I will have two the, a personal one and then a, a professional in, in my field. But the personal one was being shy. I was very, very shy. I still am. But uh, I had to speak for the turtles because they can't speak for themselves. And the work that I deal with is very compelling. There's a strong need. And I was really afraid to get up to speak in front of people. I tell the story sometimes about how at Cornell I had a choice between scientific writing and speech. And I took the speech class for one class and gave one presentation, was shaking so much I ran and dropped it and took the scientific writing instead. But um, I just had to slowly get over it, just um, working uh, more and more just to, to get over it myself. I didn't have anybody help me, but just uh, learning to just get up there and give the presentations because I had to, because I had to. Uh, for, to help train people, to help inspire people, to help discuss the need to, which would make my proposals more competitive. And so that works into the professional uh, significant challenge, which was funding. And uh, the project that I worked with was dirt poor. We had no money at all. When I was transferred to the USGS, there wasn't even enough money transferred for my salary, much less any work. And I had all of the sea turtle responsibilities transferred with me. So I had to learn to write proposals. And again, I, I wish that I could say I had mentors helping me, but I didn't. I had to learn on my own how to write proposals that were compelling and how to find funding um, to be able to meet those needs because the turtles were coming. There's some fields where you can decide, well, I've got to do the bird survey or I might not do the bird survey. These turtles are going to be coming up and uh, laying their eggs on the beach and they'll be crossing the beach vehicular roadway when they come up to lay their eggs. So we had to be prepared. So we had to get funding. So those were my challenges, biggest challenges. Dr. Shaver, I love that you called out the, the personal and professional component of it, because I feel like as you grow as a professional, especially early out of um, undergraduate and even out of master's programs, so much of the growth is personal as you learn to become a professional. Um, and so I'll call out something similar where um, one of my biggest challenges has been learning how to say no to managers and directors above me um, when or in finding the right way to do that. Um, so that I can create more of a balance for myself and my family. Um, so coming out of undergrad, Frankie and I got married about six months after I started full-time, and then we had Sophia, or I got pregnant with Sophia about three months later. Um, and one of the challenges we face is just continuing to try to find balance as a family. And management consulting, as many of the folks on the call um, have similar situations, it's long hours. Um, and in consulting in particular, you're working with uh, corporate clients a lot of the time who have really high expectations, tight deadlines. Um, and I think you're going to find something like that no matter what field you go into. In research, you know, you always have, you have people that you're reporting to, trying to submit proposals to and things like that as well. 
Um, so for me, the way I addressed that was just seeking advice from mentors um, and finding people who maybe weren't super senior above me, but had a little bit more tenure and experience at my role um, and ask them for advice on how to have those tough conversations with my team members um, and ended up finding a really great balance. And I found that once I was honest with my team, um, it ended up not being as big an issue as I thought it was going to be. I thought, you know, that asking, just telling them I needed to take, you know, call it six to 8 PM off every night consistently to just unplug and be with my family and take care of my daughter. I thought that was going to be a huge upset, but it wasn't even close. And it actually paved the way for other team members to say, Oh, well, you know, I don't have a daughter, but I would really like to, you know, I have a commitment to my health and I like to go on a run and make a healthy dinner. Right. And so like doing that created safe space for other people to bring up similar concerns. Um, and so I think as you emerge into your early professional life, something that's really helpful to keep in mind is that, um, sometimes the things that seem like a huge deal. And to me, it felt like a huge, I'm an overachiever, perfectionist, people pleaser. Um, and so asking for that time off was really tricky, but it wasn't as big a deal as I thought it was going to be in the end. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ellie. Thank you for the panel for that question. Um, uh, something that was brought up was to put the questions in the chat so people can see them. Um, and that way that'll help people remember like the question. So I'll start doing that as well in case people forget. So the second question that I have for all of y'all is how would you define success for yourself? Like what does success mean to you in your life, in your career? Like what, it, how would you define success? Whoever wants to go first. I'll go ahead and go. Um, for me, the, I had to kind of look this up because I was thinking, well, how do I put this in words and things like that? And it's kind of never done this before. So I thought about it and I looked, looked something up that I agree with quite a bit. It's, um, there's a book called uh, The Measure of a Man by uh, Sidney Pontier. And it says, one of the quotes is, I'm, I'm the me that I choose to be. If that, and that being a true statement for a man, I, I took that over to, as a nurse and it says, uh, the definition of success in nursing could simply be, be, accomplished, be accomplishing the goals I, I set for myself while also being the nurse I choose to be, which is, um, for me, it's, it's uh, you know, every day to take care of the people the best that I can every time so that that person that I'm taking care of feels like they were taken care of um, and that hopefully, um, and, and it doesn't mean that everybody's going to improve. It means that, that they, they felt that their needs were met at the time that they needed their needs met. And I was the person that did it. And so to me, that's, um, that's the goal for the day is to accomplish the needs of my patients. And so that's what I would choose to say about successful nursing. I think for me, success is working with people that inspire me and helping other people um, do their jobs or be a, their selves better. Um, and for me, that works out really well in, in client service because I'm literally solving clients' problems all day. Um, and the thing that 
makes me feel like I'm doing a good job at, or doing a good job at my job um, is when I am on a team and we, it, it's just like a good, a good team situation. So I'm, the team members, you know, relatively get along um, and we have established the right, you know, guardrails and communication norms and things such that, um, such that we feel like no matter what problem is thrown at us, um, that we can solve it. And so for me, as an individual, that kind of translates to feeling like success. Um, success is a little bit about service for me personally, feeling like I'm serving client members and my team, um, but also that I, I am accomplishing some grander mission than just making money or um, solving one individual problem. Um, so that's professionally. Personally, success um, is, I think, being the best mom, the best wife, uh, the best daughter, sister that I can be, um, and making sure that I'm doing my best to love my family as much as I can every day. I, um, I define success um, personally as a, I think the, the poet Jason Isbell put it best. Are you living the life you chose? Are you living the life that chose you? And I am very lucky that it's both. Um, it took me a while to get here, but eventually I realized that this is what I want to be doing. And now I'm very fortunate to be able to do that. And I wake up day, every day feeling very successful, um, especially because professionally I'm serving those that need it. Um, and I feel very good about myself because I get to, um, uh, teach those that, that need it. Um, our mission at the Bamberger Ranch Preserve is to use our 5,500 acres as an outdoor classroom for um, underprivileged and underserved youth. Uh, and we bring kids out from, from all over the state of Texas for different programs and it makes a huge difference. And I feel very successful uh, getting to do that. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky. I've got a loud colleague down the hall and he just started talking loudly again as soon as I, I get ready to talk. Um, that's funny. Uh, success really is, uh, again, uh, it, is, it is dual pronged as well, the, the professional versus the personal. Uh, on a personal level, I feel, uh, but my, my, my older, brother, Dr. Donald Shaver, was a TI fellow for Texas Instruments and had a great living and, and did a great job. Um, but he didn't really at first understand my path with the government. You don't make as much money if you work for the government as if you were in private industry in general in a lot of fields. Um, so uh, in, to some, in just looking at the dollar sign, it wouldn't seem uh, as successful in the field of field biology, but we uh, we're very lucky in that the work that we do can be really fulfilling to try to save one of the world's you know the world's most endangered sea turtle species that was almost lost in the blink of an eye one human generation, um, and to know that I've made a difference in that has has been very very gratifying. So I feel very successful in that in that realm. But uh, professionally, there's still a lot more work to be done. And uh, 
we're not there. We're not to the finish line of saving the species yet. And as I get older too, I see more and more of the mentor role as being very critical in what I do and passing on the knowledge that I've gained over the years. And I've been so blessed to have had this opportunity to learn about these animals and to help transfer that knowledge on to the next generation so that they can help continue what I've done. Because so I want it to be continued. I don't want it to stop. And so um, I, I'm trying to get more publications out so that the science is, is documented uh, in the peer review literature. And then also uh, we get a, a lot of young people here uh, in our seasonal positions that are, it's one of their first jobs out of college. And it's, I wouldn't call it's not exactly like a training hospital, but in, in a lot of ways, they're getting their first field biology experience. And so we're helping to teach them. And for some, they'll say, wow, this is what I want to do field biology and others. Well, maybe not so much, but that's important too, that uh, people understand and, and pick their path of what's what they're best suited for and what they enjoy doing. Uh, and it's, it's not an easy one in this field very competitive, but um, so I, th I think success is, is giving back. It's very important to me. It's always been important to me is preserve and protect for future generations. It's not just preserving and protecting for me, I'm preserving and protecting for all of you and your children and grandchildren and great, great grandchildren. That was all wonderful and beautiful. Something I did notice with everybody's kind of definition of success is that it seems like there's a very big service component to everybody's like success is serving others, caring for other people. And I think that's so beautiful that part of success is like giving back. Um, what would be some advice that you'd tell someone interested in pursuing a career like your own? Well, in my field, I would say be persistent. It is not easy uh, to get your foot in the door with a permanent job. Uh, you may have to zig and zag a little bit to get to exactly where you want it. Like uh, things have changed a lot over the years, but in my case, to get my foot in the door with the first permanent job, I had to be a radio dispatcher and fee collector for nine months, which was hard for shy Donna from Syracuse to do. <laughs> but that with my master's degree, but that's, you know, to get that experience with that, uh, that career conditional job. And then then I could go back into the biology. So be, be, be persistent, but don't be so stuck on it's just one path. You may have to take a little detour to get back to where you want to go. Some advice that uh, I would give somebody if they're interested in a similar career is, is be as well-rounded as you can be. Uh, working for a nonprofit, we often like to joke that even our executive director cleans toilets. And there's a lot of things that you have to just know how to do. Um, and I think all the internships that you can get when you're in college, don't be in a hurry to get out of college. Don't take out too much student loan debt, um, especially if you're going to go the nonprofit route because you don't do it for the money and you don't do it for the hours. Uh, so it's just uh, finding, finding um, a good appropriate balance uh, to that um, personally and professionally and just find when you do a lot of different jobs, you figure out what you like to do, what you're willing to do, and what you really don't want to do.
Um, so yeah, don't be afraid to, to take an internship because it seems a little bit off the wall. Those are usually the, the best. I feel like my career path is a little bit weird and specific. Um, so if anyone wants to talk about that whole recruiting process, uh, you should send me a message separately. Um, but I think if you generally want to go branch outside of science and go into public policy or into business, I think two things that you can leverage, especially as students and the advice I would give one is you have amazing resources on campus, some of which you might not even know about yet. Um, when I was at Anim College Station, we had like an entire public policy institute that no one ever really advertised and I didn't really know about. But usually there's someone on campus, um, a professor, a program advisor, someone who knows something or knows someone um, related to the topic you wanna get into. And so I think it always helps just to like ask around and like start, you know, introduce yourself to people a little bit. If, you, if there's something you're looking for and you can't find it, there's usually someone who can help you on campus. Um, and leverage campus, the campus network while you can, while you're there. Um, the second thing I would say is to find some, find someone who, maybe a mentor, a sponsor, someone who may not give you all the answers you need, but can point you in the right direction and give you the right, and, and prompt you with the right questions to think about. Um, that has been one of the most helpful forces in my life. And I mean, even if it's a good friend, right? It doesn't have to be someone who's 20 years old, 30 years older than you. Um, find people who are willing to challenge you and, and push your thinking a little bit. Um, because oftentimes they'll, they'll make you ask, ask yourself some questions that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. Um, I know that's been true with, with my husband um, and with a lot of good friends as well. And um, well, advice I'd give somebody else, uh, if they were thinking about coming into nursing, uh, would probably be, uh, you know, there's a lot of big challenges. Uh, you know, don't, I would, wouldn't set them up to fail. I wouldn't say it's, the, it's, you know, easy or anything like that. I, there's a lot of challenges. And, and so they need a, when they, if somebody chooses nursing, they need, they should know up front that there's challenges uh, and they're scary. But um, as far as um, the best quote I could ever think about when it comes to this is, it's the best job I ever had and uh, can't beat it. And so I would leave him with that. Just be ready to take on a challenge and overcome one day at a time. And you do make a difference by either helping somebody get birth into this world or giving the, the dignity of somebody who's leading. You do it all. You're there. So it's it's not for the weak, definitely, and it's and it's, but it's fun. There's a lot of fun in it, and and uh, it's very rewarding. So hopefully, hopefully it would that would convince somebody that that they could do it. Thank you. I feel like that was all really great advice and stuff that honestly, for myself, I could say like I've. I've kind of had to use some of that advice myself. Yeah, persistence, doing things that are odd. Um, I can relate to that really because my kind of my path has been very different than what I've what I initially thought I was going to do. So that's definitely been a lot of 
interesting things. Um, but yeah, also resources and then a lot of challenges. Next question. Um, and kind of the last one for the whole panel. Um, then we'll get into some kind of more personal for the different panelists' questions. Um, so, and then it's one of those when we give a specific question to a certain panelist, the other panelists people can also respond to the question if they feel like that's the question they want to answer. Um, but it's one of those like, uh, since some of us asked y'all to come, we're going to ask y'all questions that others can answer too. So, last, the last one: What continues to motivate you and inspire you when you face challenges? This is um, a really a good question, and I'm, I'm glad that uh, I, I get a chance to, to answer this one. It is definitely combating nature deficit disorder with the next generations. Um, that is to see a child who had never seen grass before cry when the school bus came was, and that was like my third day uh, on the job full time, just completely changed my life. And I have no idea what difference I'm making but I know that I'm reaching enough and then it's just, it adds to the success of my legacy of being able to teach sustainability and be able to teach proper conservation um, and, and just keep that going. It's extremely motivating. Well, for me, what uh, has really helped me in, in recent years has been the the strength and determination and positive feedback from the volunteers working for our program that are so dedicated and, and help us every day and come in just enthusiastic and ready to give of themselves to wanting to make a difference that just sheer force of all of them collectively, as well as uh, of the, the people working on my team. Uh, the people that I supervise, and they uh, inspire me and motivate me to try to be a better supervisor to them and elevate the whole level of our, our service and of our mission. Uh, for somebody who got into field biology, a shy Donna from Syracuse who just wanted to work with the animals, I've seen my life transform to be uh, understanding that we all need other people. And this program has depended upon the help of a lot of people uh, that have given of themselves over the years. This, this has been in existence uh, since 1978. I started in 1980 with it, but it was around even before I was. And, and we've had a lot of people help over the years, a lot of people. This is a, this is a tough one. Um not as tough as just defining success, but it, it's a little bit tough because um, I feel like it changes a lot, um, especially early in your career when you, you haven't faced as many challenges and had as many successes um, just in terms of quantity, right? So I would say the thing that continues to motivate and inspire me is, is threefold. One is when something goes really well with a client or like there's like a light bulb moment and you've helped someone understand something better than they could have on their own. That inspires me um, because I feel like I've made an impact for that individual client um, or even a team member. I would say two is um, what continues to inspire me is working with really great people. So I've just, I've happened to find a job where I really love the type of people I work with for the most part. 
Um, and they inspire me to do my job better um, every day. Um, and so even if the, you know, this, the particular problem I'm solving or like the work I'm doing is, is really challenging um, or if I'm in a really tricky situation, um, the people around me continue to motivate and inspire me. And then the third is um, I have found ways to recharge. Some challenges drain you. They, exhaust, they can be exhausting and really frustrating and stressful. And I think finding ways to recharge, even, you know, I happen to be on vacation right now, right? But that's not always possible. Um, and you don't even always have that available. And so sometimes that's taking 30 minutes to read a book. Sometimes that's just like pausing and taking 30 minutes to like play with my daughter and talk to my husband. Sometimes it's going on a walk, but finding those ways to just step back from the challenge you're facing um, and, and take a breather for lack of a better term um, has been one of the ways I've been able to stay motivated when I face challenges. Um, what uh, helps me to stay motivated is um, knowing that, uh, that I have to have somebody else's back as well as they have mine, uh, that it, to be able to know that I, I help somebody today, either if it's a team member or you know, someone on a team like a physician or uh, another nurse or whoever it is, uh, or a patient, whichever it is, they all motivate, all add to little bits of energy that motivate myself to know that I have to be there, I have to show up, um, because it's, it's people are dependent on me, and, and uh, so I have to be the best me that I can be, so I can be somebody, help somebody else, basically, yeah. so that all keeps me motivated. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for answering that question. Um, okay, now, now um, what we're going to do is we're going to ask a couple individual questions to each of our speakers. The other, uh, the other panelists are welcome to also respond to the question if they feel so inclined. Uh, but uh, so, Dr. Shaver, I actually had a couple questions for you. Really, um, kind of. Uh, one of my questions is, as a woman in science and conservation, what was the most most formidable challenge you faced trying to be a woman in science and do conservation? What was your biggest challenge there? Uh, being a woman in science and conservation. Um, <laughs> there were certainly additional challenges. I won't say that there wasn't, especially in South Texas. Um, there were times I'd be out in the boat, uh, the boat op operator would be spoken to as if they were leading the research endeavor. And no, it was my project, not his. Um, to being called uh, that blonde girl instead of Dr. Shaver, when all the men were called doctor, 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 and then Donna, or worse yet, that blonde girl. Um, uh, overcoming bias, overcoming bias of uh, people that just, they don't even realize it's not, most times it's not malicious, it's not intended, it's not even known. It's just this underlying bias that uh, it's his project or he would know 
especially with you know my field work utilizes UTVs and patrolling and you know well he doesn't know the mechanics of these vehicles and what should be used for this or that as much as say some man might um, but just trying to work through it the best you can being uh, being firm, being uh, you know as direct as you can, but being nice and, and approachable. I work in a in an, an office where I'm the only PhD, and there's some people that uh, just have high school degrees, and so making sure that people don't feel like oh she's snooty or she puts on airs or she thinks she's better than other people. I have to make sure that they think we're on a a level playing field from that angle, but I don't want it to go down too far either though, where, you know, viewed as less because I'm a woman. So um, perceptions, qualifications, taking of opinions. A lot of times there'll be a meeting and there'll be suggestions that are given. I'll give a suggestion, be poo-pooed. And then, you know, when you get around to a man, then it's a good suggestion. <laughs> oh, there's the same suggestion, just said by somebody different. So society's got a ways to go, and and um, and we all can be more inclusive and understanding, everyone, because we need this diversity in our workforce of gender, of race, of age, etc. Appreciate you talking about that. Um, one of my Kind of, I guess, a little bit of a follow-up to that was: Do you see um, more of the um, issues that you have when you were younger? Do you do you still see that nowadays as much in in your fields? Like just uh, yeah, yeah, yes and no, yes and no. There was when I started in the '80s. There was very overt sexual harassment. Now, fortunately, there are policies and procedures to deal with that. And so we don't see as much of that, fortunately, very, very fortunately. I'm glad to, to see that. Um, uh, it, it's, it's a lot better than it was, but we still have a ways to go. I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much, Dr. Shaver. Um, I guess one more question I've got for you. Um, I, I really liked this question was because of the unique challenges you faced um, with having to overcome like shyness and then like just trying to work through and do conservation and everything. Um, what have you really come to value more in your life, having overcome all these different challenges and having so having a lot of success. Um, like, what have you come to value most in your life now. Uh, trusted faithful employees that uh, uh, and, and friends, people that um, that are trusted and, and that don't let you down. Thank you. Really appreciated that. Okay. Um, I guess next, um, Joseph or Frankie, do y'all want to mention some of y'all's questions you have for some for the panelists you brought? Um, primarily toward Jared Holmes and Ali Torres. 
or, or whoever else wants to jump in. I know that you all have families too, but the question is, how is, how is starting a family affected uh, the dynamic of your work-life balance? And how have you adapted to Ooh, that's, that's a, uh, a real tough one. Um, I'm very fortunate. I don't have much of a, oh, I'm not fortunate because I don't have much of a work-life balance. It's pretty much all work. Uh, when you live at the same place you work, uh, there's just additional challenges uh, with that. Um, so I'll just say, I just have an amazing wife um, who has just been um, amazing at that. And then I have really great coworkers that um, all have families or have grown children now and, and uh, are willing to help me and, and pick, pick up where I need help and um, just do the little things for me. Like I, I can't go hunting today. Well, they happen to be in the truck and find something, you know, I can still feed the family. So it's been um, nice from that way, but it is, it is tough and COVID has made it even more challenging. Um, as two working parents, uh, the daycare risk, trying to, my wife is an officer at the local bank and trying to figure out what to do with a, a 13 month old kid. Um, it's just been a, a, an extreme challenge, but I've got great parents, I've got great coworkers and she's got great parents and we've all kind of just chipped in and um, been very lucky to, uh, to just, really tackle this as a team because uh, it does it takes a village we I've had to become a lot more flexible I think than I naturally am um, as a parent I've had to uh, give up control to say you know we we need help with the kids like we're just gonna drive and work from one of our parents houses thankfully we have jobs that are, are pretty mobile so you know we'll just pack up everyone and head over if we have a particularly really difficult week um, we'll let Sophia hang out with her grandparents, you know, for that week. Um, so we're fortunate that we can do that, but I've had to become a lot more flexible, um, in what I'm willing to change in terms of like my habits and my, my working preferences, um, in order to make it work. So, uh, being flexible is one way I've had to adapt, um, and letting go of some of that control. Um, I think the other thing I've had to do is just communicate with my teams a lot more that I'm used to about what's going on with my personal life, not that they know everything, but just so that they can kind of know what to expect from me. Um, I've had to make sure those expectations are really clear, both with my working teams and with uh, my family at home um, so that we can, we can all work together um, to take care of this little one. So that, I would say those are the two main changes that are two ways I've adapted. And then I do have one more uh, question for, it's sort of a general question for the panelists. Um, everybody's definition of success included some component of helping. My question is for your specific field, what is one topic or issue uh, we can do to contribute to bettering that field? I think just, just talking about it. Um, you know, talking about what the carbon footprint is, talking about sustainability, and talking about the next generation. Um, it's never too early to start talking about those subjects. Um, third graders today are a lot better educated on the water cycle. And I think, uh, I know when I was in school, we'll just say 
15 years ago, if you believe that, um, that uh, I learned that water was a renewable resource. Um, well, it's really not. Um, and there's just a lot of challenges that go with that. And it's getting these, these uh, the next generations to understand that one person can make a difference. And it all starts with those micro choices. What grocery store do you go to? Um, are you going to recycle? Uh, where does your food come from? Um, can you walk instead of taking a car? Can you take a bike instead of taking a car? Uh, just those, those little choices, I think, uh, are, are the big things that everybody can, can do um, to help just spread the word uh, on just making the world a better place in general. I don't know that I have a great answer for this one specific to my field. Um, I would love to hear any of the other panelists' thoughts if you guys have a response to that question. Well, as far as nursing goes, um, and or healthcare, uh, yeah, that's not a topic that can be easily fixed. <laughs> There's just, uh, yeah, it's it's very it's way over even my pay grade to even know what to how to think of health. But in a in a small way, if people choose, could you you know if they chose to to do nursing. Uh, or any healthcare field, it would, I think it would help in the, in, in the big picture. Uh, you know, there's, everybody wants, thinks it's about the money or something like that. And they all go for those higher paying uh, degrees and things like that, which is, you know, can't hold that against anybody. It, it's just, but in overall, there's, you know, the CNA, the, the, the EMT, the basic, those basic people that are front lines as well are just just as needed. So it's everybody definitely putting their putting their their best foot forward. And when it comes to this, there's just no easy answers for healthcare or nursing in general. But it's 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 something that I think everybody still needs to take a look at. Well, I know one way I can help nurses out is by staying healthy, <laughs> so that I don't have to get taken care of in a hospital. <laughs> That's always a good start. <laughs> it's always a good start. And I also say too that just awareness um, about the, the healthcare industry in general, um, not only just the shortage of nurses, but just in general, um, you know, everybody's got the power to vote and then knowing what's going on with healthcare. Um, I mean, that one ballot can go a long way. Okay, Joseph, you're gonna take over and ask a couple questions. Yeah, so hopefully everyone can hear me right now. Um, so I, I just have a kind of a list of questions. I look, I'm looking at it right now. Um, this is mostly for um, Mr. Rene Gar Garza. Uh, but like I said, like uh, what Frankie and Elizabeth has been saying, feel free to jump in if it also, you know, kind of called ACU. Um, but I guess this is a little bit more specific for the first one. So I'm just gonna ask, um, how did you become interested in working in the medical field? before you became an RN? So like, maybe as an undergrad, as a kid, what were like, I guess some of your aspirations, you know, before becoming what you are today? Right, so um, growing up, I was uh, kind of a, a, one of those guys that you would probably seen at the, uh, as a considered a jock. I didn't do anything uh, really in the science area other than I, I did really well in, in, in PE. No, I'm just kidding. And 
in health uh, in health classes as well. Uh, but I still had a had to overcome a lot of things in my own gender thought mind gender thing because nurses were only for girls at the time that I was in high school and and so I went to uh, I went to the military and I served uh, in the military and I tried to be a and security forces, you know, something hardcore, you know, tactical, let's go kill somebody kind of guys. And uh, well, then I ended up uh, not qualifying for that and more qualifying for more as a medic, go figure. So I was a medic for six and a half years. And it kind of like, I, I like to say that I defaulted into the medical field because it seemed that's kind of lined up with really my personality, my, uh, how I thought of at the, at the time, and I still think that now is I just want to help people. And then, uh, like, my mom is a, is a was, was going to nursing school and she couldn't finish. And so it kind of like, okay, well, there's just a little bit at it. Okay, well, I can do this as well for, uh, it kind of fits the family narrative too, you know. And so, and my dad was an x-ray tech. So uh, from there, we just kind of, started the path and walked it out but it was mostly uh, started by <laughs> i would like to say default but it was a good default it, you know because sometimes like i think um i forgot the guy the gentleman's name with the the reptile guy <laughs> sorry uh, he he said that kind of the same thing you know and sometimes it's life does that for us is that it, we end up defaulting to the the thing the purpose that we had in life so anyway Basically, I don't answer the question. <laughs> yeah, I do agree. I feel like, yeah, we do have some sort of default, but usually a lot of what we kind of experience and even from our family does uh, infect what we want to do in the future. Like, Everly, I know that's also on me, and I'm pretty sure that's what was everyone else. Um, another thing I wanted to ask, let me see. I wish I had them memorized, but I have I have the questions kind of like tied here, just in case. Um, this is actually a little bit more general question I got for y'all. Uh, so, what do y'all look forward to working or in your occupation? What What do you most look forward to? Okay. Uh, I kind of look forward to just um, you know because I think personality. I ended up being more of a rescuer type person, so helping helping somebody out. Uh, that's what I look forward to. Um, really doing just helping somebody else out yeah I, I just really look forward to uh, the the school groups that we have out here um, and you know to fit right into the stereotype as a reptile guy uh, every every March we have um, a, a field day out here um, it's called herpetological field day where I get to teach 15 kids ages 9 um, to 16 how to go out and take field notes and and be safe uh, among reptiles and amphibians. And it's the greatest day of the year, um, at least for me. And I, I always look forward to that, but it's all those little programs that add up to that too. Plus it's a new audience every day to tell my amazing jokes. I think the thing I look forward to most in my job, um, and I've probably said this already, but I think it's those, those days when I get to solve a problem with my team and it's, I, I like, you know, work doing my own independent work too, just as part of my personality. Um, but my favorite times are when I can bring 
the thing I'm solving to my team and then we can make it even better together. Um, and then it just makes a better answer for our client. Um, and for me, that's really exciting to getting to get input from my team members because goodness knows I'm not the smartest person in the room. Um, and to at the same time, um, just come up with like, what is the right answer? Right. And, and come up with something better th together than I could have done on my own. So that for me, that is really, really energizing. And I look forward to the chances when I get to do that um, with my teams. Well, this is, uh, it varies during different times of year, but of course, during the nesting season, we're always looking forward to a big nesting day with uh, a lot of turtles coming ashore. And uh, I'm particularly interested in seeing some that I've seen in years before, some that I hatched uh, in the 1980s that have come back. That's, that's always fun to see. Um, when we have our public releases of hatchlings, I really look forward to seeing the crowds in the morning, the, the young children with uh, their enthusiastic smiles and, and they'll be the, they'll run to be the ones first in line around the semicircle where we release the little hatchlings. And, uh, and, and hearing as I put the first one on the beach, hearing woo, because the, the turtle is so small and people are in awe of how tiny it is and how the little turtles are just on instinct uh, heading towards the water. There's no you know, maternal care that, that goes into uh, what a little hatchling sea turtle does. They come up through the sand on their own and dart down into the water. And so th those are times that I really look forward to. Uh, of course, having a scientific paper accepted for publication is always a highlight. That's always a good day. Um, and uh, just uh, hearing positive things from the staff and from our volunteers. Those are always things I look forward to as well. There's a, there, 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 there's a chat here. I'd like to help with that. Where can I get information on helping with the sea turtles? Uh, we allow people to volunteer with our nesting patrol program. We will be delivering training in, uh, in March uh, for the nesting patrol. We'll be delivering training in October for the cold stunning where we go out and we look for the, the turtles that become immobilized to the cold water temperatures. Uh, if people are interested in learning about the volunteer opportunities, uh, they can call up our uh, volunteer coordinator they can call 361-949-8173 uh, extension, which extension? 268. I was going to say, you can probably put that in the chat just so that we can let everyone know. Oh, sure. Volunteer. Absolutely. Be glad to. Um, thank you all for y'all's responses. Those are really great. It's a great way to uh, to kind of look forward to what you do. It kind of makes life a lot better. Um, my last question I ask, just so that way we can also get some questions from um, from our audience as well, whether through in the chat box or if you wanted to unmute your mic to, to ask the question to any of our panel of uh, speakers, um, just go ahead and do so. But uh, my last question, 
for Belegar. So, so I know we're kind of a mess in this uh, COVID pandemic, and I know uh, me and, me and uh, you, uh, uh, Dad, we actually have discussed about this a lot uh, through text or even through calling. But um, being part of the medical frontline, how has work changed, you know, dealing with patients who may have, you know, tested positive for COVID-19 or any, like, any type of, like, protocols that you now have to follow now? Now that this you know pandemic is a thing now, um, right? Um, well, the biggest change is, of course, is just added workload um, for the most part. Uh, learning, learning uh, how to implement uh, new protocols into an already challenging, basically a challenging area. Um, area. Uh, some of the things that we've done, and I and I've kind of you know, I handled this in a with the you know just because I have experience of, I remember when AIDS came, the first thing time AIDS came out. I remember when, um, you know, Ebola was first kind of like big news, and I remember and I've gone through all these different viruses. Uh, first the the bird flu or the N one H one or H one N one whatever it is however it goes. Uh, anyway, so all those different um, things, and, and they've all been uh, initially very, very scary. But uh, what we would, uh, I try to tell everybody who's new or anybody that's dealing with it is basically get good information. Don't go just by the news. Don't just go by politicians. Don't just go, go get real information um, and, and, and learn what you have to do to protect yourself. Um, because it's, I think uh, there's nothing been more politicized, <laughs> I guess you could say, as, as this has. Uh, so I, I work in a place, um, it's a jail. So the jail I work in is 2,000 prisoners. And out of those 2,000 prisoners, we had, uh, it's like a petri dish, basically. Uh, you, those guys don't have any outside contact unless something comes into it then whatever comes in, then it can it spread. Well, we had somebody not say what their symptoms were. They had fever, they, had, they ended up having COVID and they came into work, which was a laundry person. Well, the laundry goes to everybody. <laughs> so like a, like, a, like a germ would in a Petri dish, it basically went poof all over that place, right? So, and so every day I, you know, we went out and we had to go take Tamps and look for symptoms and signs and symptoms. And uh, a lot of people, and I'm saying a high majority, and I wish I had exact numbers, I don't, but I wanna say maybe 90% to, to, to 95% of them had no symptoms. They just were positive. And then we had uh, people with fever, a very small percentage of people had fever. and we. We were trying to isolate them and take them out and move them, but then it ended up being where it just ended up spreading worse. And it was just like, well, this isn't working because, you know. <laughs> so basically we just let people sit as far as, and then our positives have decreased to zero on their own. And uh, out of all those people that, that, that came in contact with it, one death. And so it, it reduced my fear quite a bit to know that, that, um, that I was in this every day that I worked, 12 hours a day that I worked. And 
I am yet to be positive. So, <laughs> so it reduces my fear because just, and that's just taking, doing basic things like you know, maybe hand washing a little bit more, maybe not touching my face. Um, maybe um, things like that, the basic stuff that we should do. And that alone has really, really helped. Uh, one, reduce fear. And two, uh, see that it's not as the big bad monster that we don't know about. It's, it's, I don't know about, I guess. And that, I think learning that firsthand is, is, um, is basically the, the learning what you have to know. I mean, learning the best information you can get and then learning that and then implementing it and then walking it out. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely increased workload, but, but it's not as scary as I think it's been betrayed. Even though for some people that have the symptoms, it's very scary. And I can understand that. And that's why I'm here to help those people that are sick. So anyway. Thank you again for the, for the responses. Yeah, it's really good to actually, to kind of know uh, what you're dealing with so that we can try to avoid it as much as, as, as possible and not, you know, try to get infected and stuff like that. Try not to panic. <laughs> yeah, try not to panic. Hold your hold your emotions. Get the information because ultimately the battle of something that you're scared of is to know the truth about it. And sometimes the truth can be even more scary. But you know that's why there's you put you start implementing things as soon as you can to help prevent uh, worse a worse outcome. Okay, um, with that, I think that was all the all the questions that the officers had for our guests that have so kindly come and joined. Um, what questions do y'all have for our panel? Uh, hi, uh, my name is my name is John. Uh, I'm an MS biology student. Um, so I guess I have a question mostly for Ali. Uh, so I'm interested in. I'm not, I don't think I'm interested in management consulting, but I think I'm interested in like statistics or data science. So more in like a business field. So um, do you have any recommendations on uh, get breaking into the uh, more of a business field with a um, without without that background or um, getting a job? Yeah, so I would say um, a couple things. So one is identifying the kind of role that you want, right? So if, if you can do that by just looking at like some companies that you know about that you know hire data scientists, almost everyone does these days. Um, and then kind of figure out like, what does it look like the kind of like requirements that they're looking for, not in terms of like your education, but like what the role, what the job you be doing is, what the qualifications and requirements are. Um, and then figure out how to kind of like tailor your resume, right? And then I would probably start reaching out. Um, you and I can, I'm always happy to jump on the phone and chat through this in more detail. Um, but I would say um, kind of tailor your resume so that you call out where, hey, you know, I have similar experiences or things that have prepared me to do the job that I think, you know, you're describing. And then using LinkedIn is a good way to see what jobs are out there, connect with people doing the job you want to do. 
and see if they're, you know, look for people who maybe graduated from A&M. Um, reach out to them on LinkedIn and say, hey, I noticed you have this data science job. Um, and it's something I want to know, like, how to how you got into this role. I would love, you know, to spend 10 to 15 minutes even just talking to you and learning how you how you did that. Um, so I would say that's one one piece of advice I'd give, um, especially like you know, try to try to connect with Aggies. Aggies love to help other Aggies, I think. Um, and then the other thing that comes to mind is just kind of once you clean up your resume, honestly, just like start sending it out to places where you, can, you might want to work. Um, it, it's it is tough. Like the job search is tough, and there's so many companies and businesses that are using data science now that I feel like it's it's growing and hopefully that makes it a little bit easier to find find a job in what you want to do. Um, but if it's helpful, I'm also happy um, to connect separately. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, other questions to our panel? Hi, uh, my I would just like to ask a few questions to all the panelists in general, but uh, before that, I would like to set the background so that you could understand the core of what I'm trying to understand as an international student. So I'm a new uh, grad student, uh, international student from Nepal. And then I have a couple of years of working experience in certain themes like climate change, forest management, human wildlife conflict, biodiversity conservation for maybe five years or more. Mm, saying that uh, I would, if I would want to have a career here, so as an international student, I would have a lot of cultural differences. And then the professional differences that I have been going through. So what are the, those challenges or the cultural differences that I should overcome? Or like, what are the cultural differences? Like cult I have to reset my cultural clock to suit into the United States condition because I, I have been growing in the uh, different cultures. So I'll just would like to hear your views on that. Thank you. Uh, I'll just say, um, be patient, um, especially here in the States. I think a lot of us are, are ignorant to a lot of older cultures. We, a lot of people that, um, that come out to, to the ranch, they haven't left the county. Um, and I don't say that as a knock, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm very well traveled and I have an appreciation for culture. And I uh, struggle when I did uh, research down in um, Latin America, you know, if there's a cultural difference, I imagine it's probably a, a bigger cultural difference coming from Nepal to here. Um, but still, you know, and I just, I was trying to be patient and learn, um, especially some of the, the difference in lingo um, and language. Uh, when you learn the the King's Spanish, it's a little bit different when you get down into um, um, Latin America and stuff. So I think patience and just having an open mind um, and, and not getting upset at, at other people's viewpoints or closed-mindedness, especially at first. 
Um, I'd like to add to that. Uh, add to that is uh, uh, find out as much about culture in itself. So um, not everything is, of course, it can be learned in a book, but everything can. But it's a good start. And so uh, I think teaching your culture as well to people that are willing to listen is, is a good place to start as well. Because uh, some people just don't know. And, and they're probably curious, but don't know how to ask. And I've been to, you know, several countries as well. And, you know, we, when I went to like, say, Japan, we had a little class about this is how Japanese are. And, and uh, we, so that helped us when we went to Japan. And, but it didn't give us the, the, the lay, I mean, it just helped us. It was a good starting point. It's just not, the, the finish point should be uh, interpersonal relationships and, and how you start those slowly will help other people to, to know uh, your culture as well as you to learn theirs. And it's being open and, but it's, it starts with learning as much as you can and then starting an interpersonal relationship with somebody, with people and being friendly and if you're, Friendly, you'll be get friends, right? So, <laughs> and and say I don't not understanding where this is coming from, and then maybe y'all could have a nice little start to conversation, and things like that. But yeah, uh, it's good to know. It's growing is is the part about learning somebody else is very important. Yeah. So I just have another question for like uh, maybe Jared and Dr. Saver. So because I have been working quite often with the wildlife and national park. Um, so I have maybe because you, you have been working with the reptiles, but I have been working with the mammals for some time. So how much does the community or the people living around the area are involved into the conservation here in the United States. Because like in our country, if it's the protected area, people would be living around the, uh, the protected area, but they would not want to have the protected area because it has a lot of um, control over the resources. So do you have any such kind of problems here? Well, for, for my project, uh, we're really blessed by having a community that loves what we're doing and is anxious to become involved. We get more than 100 volunteers that help every year with the nesting project, and then we train about 100 for the cold stunning work as well. Uh, the logistics of them getting into the area are just as difficult as it is for we employees. You know, it's uh, the longest stretch of undeveloped Barrier Island Beach in the United States. No road behind the dunes. So uh, people that are are volunteering, we, we put them on our UTVs paired with one of our staff members. And they love it. They, it is really important because we're, again, preserving and protecting for future generations of the public, not just of employees. And this way they take ownership in the work, they feel part of the work. And I've been really gratified over time to see, when I first came to uh, to South Texas 
you'd go into one of the knickknack shops and you wouldn't see anything sea turtle themed, nothing, nothing. And now you go in and there's t-shirts with sea turtles and all little kinds of knickknacks. And the, so the community has embraced this iconic symbol and you see on the water tower, there's a big sea turtle, the turtle that's, that's painted and uh, on the etchings, on the pillars for the JFK Causeway, et cetera. So it's, uh, it's this interest has grown, this partnership has grown. It's important because we are sharing this earth. We have this message of it's, it's not like I have some colleagues in Florida, they'll say, oh, just kick the people off the beach or just kick them off the pier. There are turtles there, just kick them off. Well, we're in South Texas. We don't. We we try to find a way for a balance here. We have Texas Open Beaches Act and and other uh, other restrictions on uh, what's allowed. And we try to through education. And education is critical in this. Is public education and reaching out to those young people, starting the message early that uh, we're sharing this earth together. And by some do's and then some don'ts. We can all get along and, uh, and this conservation can happen. So yes, we want them to be involved and they want to be involved. Uh, we just have to show them a pathway. And to, to piggyback on that, um, one of our main jobs out here is community-based conservation um, with, with all the water misinformation and misunderstanding and private landowner rights as well um, kind of being misunderstood. It's our job to make sure that the community um, works well with us. Um, our, our main goal is open space preservation and it's to stop the uh, fragmentation of family lands. Um, and, and the only way we can really do that is through outreach and education. And it's, it's an uphill battle for sure, but it really just starts in our backyard if we can prevent the, the family farm that's on the road in, that's 1200 acres, if we can convince them, hey, you know, yeah, we can't afford to give you market value, but we can guarantee it's never gonna change. Or can you put a conservation easement on that? Um, letting them know what their options are um, for the greater good. And it's definitely an uphill battle, but you know, anything worth doing isn't easy, right? Okay, thank you. Thank you for sharing your experience. Other questions for our panel? No? Okay. Well, thank you all so much for coming today. Um, it's 1.32, so we're going to kind of close up and everything. Uh, but I do want to like thank all of our panel for coming. Um, so if we could all give them like a round of applause. That would be great. I know we're all kind of virtual, but yeah. Um, but thank you all so much for coming. Um, and thank all of uh, our members and just professors and things like that for coming as well. Thank you all for joining us. It's been really great. Um, it's wonderful to hear from all of our panel, just because, again, the diversity of our panel has been amazing to kind of hear the different points, medical as well as like conservation and teaching and uh, industry as well that's been really cool to kind of hear everybody's take on success and as we can as we've seen like there are different definitions and it is really encouraging thank y'all for all of those amazing stories like it's been to me like i'm like super inspired to go out and go do like the best i can with my life and i hope the rest of y'all are also inspired and encouraged to go out 
and do that too. And I think with all the challenges that we do see, um, I'm glad that we talked about how like, even with the challenges, we can be successful. Um, and yeah, and sometimes these challenges actually make us successful. And so that's really beautiful to see. Um, again, lastly, I just wanna thank our panel so much for coming. Um, it's been great. And with that, um, I hope to see y'all again. So we are gonna have another speaker event in November. On November 13th, we'll have a different, we'll have another speaking event. Um, our speakers on our panel may come if they wish, uh, all of our speaking events are public. So we can send y'all that as time gets closer. Um, but we also hope to have a couple other speak speakers come in between then and now. But thank you all so much for coming. Um, and I hope you'll have a great, safe, and great rest of your day and rest of your weekend. Thank you so much, guys. <laughs>